The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Hey. Hey. So what brings you home? Aside from concocting a ridiculously huge dessert. Kudos, by the way. I hate it when we argue. Me too. Why can't I go out there and define myself? No, I get it. It's just that I... Dad, look, I know. I know you want to keep me safe, but... The only way to do that is wrap me in bubble wrap and hide me in a cave. Believe me, I've thought about it. no idea where our conversation today will take us, but I'm joined in studio by Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario, Dr. Salim Mansour. Welcome back, Salim. Thank you, Bob. And it sounds like we might be talking about a little bit of maybe revisionist history or corrective history. I don't know which way to look at it, but I guess the big question of the day is, how did we get where we are today? What happened to Canada? It's become a police state. But we'll get underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Well, Salim, I would never have thought that things would get this bad in Canada or in Ontario. I guess we're Ontario is one of the worst places in the Western Hemisphere at the moment. And I guess the question is, how did we arrive here? How could this ever have happened? And should we have known better to prevent this from even ever being able to happen? Yes, Bob. I mean, it is an important question. How did we get here? We are supposed to be a free and open society, or at least we were supposed to, uh, until a certain point in time and in our history, and we can talk about it. And now we see what is happening over the last year and several months. We are approaching 18 months. And what we find is that here in Canada, we are losing in a rapid manner our freedom. Our charter of rights and freedom have been systematically abused by our government. And there seems to be very little pushback from the people. Well, that begs the question. You said that we are losing our freedom. Would it not be more accurate to say that we've already lost it? Well, losing and having lost it is a matter of speech, I suppose. Uh, but if this situation continues, if there is no pushback, if what we are currently faced with becomes, in some sense, permanent, then we have definitely lost the freedom, you know, and that's where we are headed. Take the situation with the issue of freedom of worship. Our churches have been shut down. Uh, there was no church services uh, open and allowed for Christmas of December 2020. Then it followed with um, the Easter in 2021. 
the two most significant dates in in the calendar. And so the question emerges, where is our freedom of worship? We have seen and witnessed churches not only closed down, churches have been fenced off, people who have gone to churches have been ticketed, pastors have been warned, and pastors have been publicly arrested and treated as criminal. I mean, if you recall, uh, Bob, a few weeks ago, it was on Saturday, the May 8th, mm-hmm. that Pastor Arthur Polowski up in Calgary was arrested on a highway in Calgary or outside of Calgary, taken out from his car, handcuffed in the street, dragged in and thrown into the police car and taken away along with his brother. What was the charges? That he had a service at his church, I believe, This was soon after the Easter service. But anyhow, it was May 8th. And what struck me, uh, Bob, was the date, May 8th. The following week, I was uh, in uh, Victoria Park. I just went to observe uh, the people gathering together in open air in Victoria Park. That's in, and, Lon- that's in London, Ontario, of course. Yeah, that's in Northern Ontario, in Southern Ontario, in London, uh, Southern Ontario. And it was billed as a freedom rally. And I was there and meeting people, and uh, people were gathering together and talking. Some gathered around me, and I was talking with them, the people different background. And just as an experiment, I raised the issue or raised the question. I said... You all know that last Saturday uh, there was uh, the arrest of Pastor Arthur Polowski, and everybody said yes, and how horrible it was. And I said and asked them, well, it was done on last Saturday, May 8th. It could have been done on Friday, May 7th, or Sunday, May 9th, but it was done on May 8th. Do any of you recall what May 8th signifies in our calendar? And not one person around me. And these were not just anyone. There were people, you know, with university background, professional. And indeed, there were two gentlemen who were in in their uh, civil dress, but who indicated that they were retired OPP officer, one of them. Uh, The other one was from the military, a retired military officer. And none of them could figure out what May 8th represents to my question, and I told them, look, I'm not quizzing anyone. I just wanted to know if any of you required. And then I reminded them what May 8th represents. May 8th is VE Day that we mark in our calendar. That's Victory in Europe Day, the end Mm -hmm. of World War II in 1945. The iconic picture from May 8th, 1945, is the picture of Churchill coming on the terrace of a a government building with his hand raised with the sign weave in his finger that he raises in saluting the people. So are you suggesting that was purposely chosen or was it just coincidental? Well, I don't know. I can't get into the head of the police uh, department in Calgary who authorized the arrests of Pastor Polowski uh, on May 8th. But the point is that in discussing with the people who are raising this issue, not one person around me. And I said, I said, I doubt if anybody, there was about a thousand people in the park, maybe more, uh, rallying. I said, 
maybe not even a 1% of the people gathered around here will be able to tell me what is May 8th. And that experiment was confirmed mm -hmm. that people did not know what May 8th, that it has been simply airbrushed out of their head. What it raises the question, whether the police in Calgary knew about it or did not know about it, the point that I'm leading up to is here on the day for the past 75 years, we in Canada, just as much as anywhere in the Western world, among the allied countries of the World War II, people commemorated May 8th as victory in Europe Day, the end of Second World War. We saluted, in that sense, the people who fought for what? That is what the question is going back, you know, made. What did we, they fight for? What did they put their lives on the line for? They fought for freedom. That's what we're always told. That's what exactly we're always told. So it's very symbolic as, Precisely. A, as, a, as an important date in that regard. But, you know, I've been questioning that whole scenario for many years myself. Even once in the past when we were talking about Remembrance Day, I was calling it Forgettance Day because people seem to forget what, what the big picture was about. And while, they, while it's true that on Veterans Day you honor the veterans, you should also honor the cause for which you know, they fought. Well, they wouldn't have gone to war if it was not for a purpose. Right. It was not just you know, something that was arbitrary and whimsical. They went to war to fight and defend freedom in the world, freedom in Europe, against a totalitarian power. And so the question emerges, how did we get here? And the corollary to that question is, who won the war in 1945? Hey everyone, this is an emergency update, a critical update. We've just received confirmation that after leaving worship today, Pastor Arthur Polowski was pulled over on his way home and arrested. So I have to advise both you and uh, Mr. Polowski over there that you guys are both under arrest. Please, if you would, step on a pastor in Alberta for the second time has been arrested simply for preaching. This is absolutely unbelievable that this is taking place in Alberta and taking place in Calgary in this day and age. This is the stuff you see in communist China. Now it's happened twice in Alberta. For Rebel News, I'm Adam Sos. Hello friends, this is Pastor Art Poloski. If you're watching this video, that means they have successfully arrested me and I am in jail. If you would like to support me, if you would like to support Rebel News and the legal team that is trying their best to get me out of this trouble, please go to savearthur.com. Please donate, please help. Help me, help my family, help my wife and my children to get me out of this horrible, illegal situation please go to savearthur.com and get me out of this if you can i am very grateful for every support that you're willing to give for every dollar that goes to the lawyers to get me out of this so i can go out there and be the light in this dark times thank you very much be blessed Says the voice over, the voice over. Really, Hogan, you're the most stubborn man I've ever met. Not stubborn, I'm wise to you. 
You release the prisoners, they walk out the gate. The Gestapo's waiting outside with machine guns, shot while escaping. They're <laughs> just not buying it, Clank. Kettle! Kettle! Kettle, it's over! The war is over! <laughs> well, Hogan, what do you say now? Uh, I don't know what to think. <laughs> I am the Colonel. You are the sergeant, and you are not discharged yet. Discharges, uh, what are you planning on doing, Colonel? I mean, if the war is really over. Well, back to civilian life. Hogan, you're a free man. The war is over. You may go. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll wait. I'm still not sold. Do as you wish. Of course, really none of my business, Major Hochstetter, but you could help erase the bad image the Gestapo has by releasing your prisoners now. They're civilians. That is, if the war is really over. Hogan's a war is over. <laughs> but I think I'd better wait. A special armed guard is on his way here from Berlin to pick some up. Believe me, Hochstetter, those armed guards turned back the moment they heard the news. While you're here waiting for them, they're back in Berlin dancing in the street. <laughs> yeah, you may be right. And I think Colonel Hogan had a very good suggestion. I don't think it would do any harm for the Gestapo to act a little bit more human. Frank! Careful, the war is over. <laughs> you know what? What? I think I will go release my prisoners. <laughs> now I'm convinced the war is over. <laughs> I told them they can go and they're having such a good time they don't want to leave. No one ever wants to leave Stalag 13. Excuse me a minute, I should be sharing this moment with my men. This work just to have the eight of you organize a singing group. Sorry, Colonel, we couldn't tell him. Schultz was here. Okay, beat it. <laughs> Haven't you heard, Colonel? The war is over! I know, the five of us ended it, and as soon as Clink and Hochstetter find out, they're gonna start it up again. What a beautiful job. How did you do it? No time now. You can read about it next month in Stars and Stripes. Now beat it. <laughs> well, who did win the war? Celine. That's the question you posed before the break there. Didn't we win the war? Didn't Canada win the war, the United States, Britain, France? We won the war in 1945, and what has happened in the intervening years from 1945? I mean, the discussion is about how did we get here, is to look back in time. The further back we look, the more sense we can make of how we arrived over here. And so, yes, we won the war in 1945, or at least that's the main narrative. And here we are, we are behaving 75 plus years later in a manner in which the enemy that we fought in defense of freedom we are behaving like the enemy in other words the freedom of the individual the freedom of speech freedom of worship these are being rapidly constrained curtailed or in a way snuffed out this is what we are faced with right now. So the question is, did we win the war in 1945? Or did we win the war and lose what we had won in the intervening years? And how did we arrive here? You know, that's an eternal question that I've always struggled with. I often wonder if people ever actually 
fight for freedom, or rather they fight against a certain form of oppression, and often running into another form of oppression without realizing it, because freedom has certain inviolable principles that have to be followed in order to maintain that environment of freedom. And we don't always do that. We recognize it sometimes by hard lessons, but fascism has always been relatively popular, and you had fascist nations fighting against fascist nations, or communism, they're all forms of collectivism. And I think what happens with a lot of people is on the grand scale, they prefer security over freedom. Wouldn't you say that's part of the motivation? Why we keep drifting away? Well, in a sense, yes. I mean, there is almost a perennial struggle. Yes. In terms of uh, securing freedom, fighting for freedom. But what does freedom mean if it doesn't mean the right of the individual to live according to what the individual wants, his will, the way that he wants to conduct his life without any constraints put upon him. And a political society or a society that is a good society, is a society in this particular view, is a society that provides for the individual to live freely or to have as much freedom as the individual seeks without getting into the way of others. After all, a society is made up of individuals, and so the relationship. Uh, And a good society is a society based upon individual rights and freedom. So what we are seeing right now, I mean, with with this whole phenomena of the pandemic over COVID-19 that has led to the lockdowns, the um, masking, the social distancing, in fact, the wrecking of the society that we knew it until you might say, the Christmas of 2019. I mean, sitting where we are sitting 18 months later is seeing the Christmas of 2019, the last Christmas that we in Canada as a free people celebrated and marked openly. Our churches were open and, and, and we went in and we did what we have been doing all the time. And then within a matter of a couple of months, we went into this massive lockdown which has no precedent in history and systematically our freedom based upon individual rights has been curtailed, has been taken away. And so this is where it leads to. It is a perennial struggle. Yeah, we, we as a society fought for freedom. We built our, our country on freedom, not only us, Canada, but the United States. We are not alone in what we are going through. And then we see around us and with us and among us a situation that has arisen where to affirm and assert our freedom based on individual right is being seen as a criminal offense. Yes, and, and, and all justified over a virus. No virus in the past has ever caused these kind of consequences. Well, the virus is the pretext. It could be anything that could be a pretext. Exactly. But uh, but the virus is used as the pretext to create fear, and fear basically coming back to that feeling of security again. People want the security. I want to be safe from this pandemic, from this virus. And there is no, I, I don't think there's any kind of security against that. But it's reminiscent of the statement, those who value security more than freedom shall have neither, and those who value freedom more than security shall gain both. I forget who that's attributed to, 
but it's so true. I think our history, in fact, has demonstrated that. And yet, like you say, we're throwing our history away. We're, we're going in the opposite direction. How have we lost that message? And, and that is a long, long and interesting story because it raises so many different issues mm. that have emerged since 1945 to where we have arrived right now. We fought the war against a totalitarian power that is the Third Reich, Hitler's Germany, and we defeated Hitler's Germany. What did we fight for and what did we fight against? We fought against a totalitarian power that seemed to control every aspect of human life or wanted to control every aspect of human life based on an ideology which was on racial differences. It was a race-based totalitarian ideology, a superior race in the sense that Hitler and others preached was this white superiority or Aryan superior race that is going to rule a thousand-year Reich over the lesser people. And we fought against that, and we defeated it. Did we? Because we're doing the same thing today in reverse. Correct. So that we're coming back. <laughs> yeah. So we're coming back. How after defeating them as a free society, the children, the grandchildren of the people, we call the greatest generation, who risked everything and went to war, how their their progeny have arrived at a situation, ironically, where when you start examining, when you start looking into the way they are conducting themselves, the ideology that now is becoming, in a sense, the dominant ideology of our time, is similarly race-based totalitarian ideology that has led to this lockdown. And I say race-based because in this 75-year that separates us from uh, May 8, 1945, to where we have arrived, is the the popularity, the support for, the institutional basis of what has what we now know as critical race theory. Mm-hmm. You know, it evolved over time, but critical race theory is nothing more or less than another way of presenting a totalitarian ideology, which is a mix of both Marxism and the racial ideology of the German Third Reich. This is where we have arrived at. So what is critical race theory, you know? I've always asked myself that question because the the term sounds oxymoronic to me. (laughs) It's just racism disguised in another name. Identity politics, you know, like groupthink, putting people into groups rather than treating them as individuals. And that is the only reason you'd ever even talk about race. Right, it is, it is. Identity politics and identity politics is not about the individual as an individual, but it is an uh, identity politics in terms of individual uh, defined in terms of his race, of his origin, of his gender, of his, of economic, his, his economic status, his economic anything. Status. Yeah, they can group you into any group they so, want. So, so we circle back again to the sense of belonging to a group, a collective, a class. You know, the original idea of freedom is the individual. The individual is simply, ultimately, that individual who asserts his rights to live according to 
his needs, his will, and so on and so forth. There is one word, one word that we must know and understand and promote above all. Because this is the one word, and I mean this literally, this is the one word that is the fundamental solution to every problem that I mentioned and every problem you can think of. When people understand and apply this word, it solves education, it solves healthcare, it progresses technology, it makes energy available to people. Just one word. And here's the interesting, about, interesting thing about this word. This word is something people are terrified of. How do I know they're terrified of it? Well, I, I first noticed this actually last year, last year at Genius Network, and this is gonna be a little mean to some people, but it's necessary. Everyone was talking about their different philanthropic causes, and I don't remember one person using this word. And then I read last year's letter by Mark Zuckerberg, and it was over 2,000 words, and he was telling, here's how I'm gonna spend $45 billion and improve humanity in all these ways, and yet this word didn't come up once, nor did any synonym. And it doesn't come up with Warren Buffett, it doesn't come up with Bill Gates, it's almost as if it's profanity, because people are unwilling to say it. And that's why I call it the F word. And the F word is, shout it out. Freedom. freedom. Flourishing, very good. We'll get to that too. But freedom. Now, why is that the one thing? Well, before we know what it is, it's important to know what freedom is. And particularly, I mean individual freedom or political freedom. So this, it's really important to know exactly what we mean by freedom. So freedom is the ability to act without forcible restraint by others. It's the ability to act without forcible restraint by others, and that absolutely includes the government. Now, why is this so important? It's because our fundamental nature as human beings is that first we need to think of an idea of how to create value in the world, and then we have to be able to act on it. And life and human survival and flourishing are really that simple. We need to be able to think about an idea about how to create value in the world, and then we need to be able to act on it. And when we can do that, like in the United States of America, for the most part, unfortunately, it's disappearing in many ways, but when we can do that, we get amazing results. And when we can't do that, we get concentration camps. So to just give you one example of China, which is still a place that has massive problems with freedom, but under Mao Zedong, farmers were not allowed to think and to act freely in terms of how they use their farms. And so what happened? The government got to dictate to them what they would do, and the government dictated really irrational things, and it was the biggest starvation in history. 40 million people died, 40 million people. So if we're serious about being ambitious citizens, if as entrepreneurs we want to be ambitious citizens, we should be talking about freedom all the time. So that's what freedom is. Now the question is, why don't we talk about it? It's not an accident. I didn't just reveal something that's never been discovered in history, right? The connection between freedom and human flourishing is absolute. It's been demonstrated many times. Why don't we talk about it? Well, I think there are two basic reasons. Lack of study and lack of courage. Lack of study and lack of courage. If we have a goal as entrepreneurs, let's say we want to sell more of our product, what do we do? We, we, 
we study the science of business. For instance, we'll study the science of marketing. But often when we get into the realm of promoting human flourishing around the world, we don't take it seriously as a science. Just somebody has a good idea and we give them money or we join a cause. That's complete BS. You can't accomplish anything that way. If you have a goal in life, you need to study what are the root causes of achieving this goal. And there are several fundamental root causes of mass human flourishing. And the one I'm focusing on today is freedom because that's the ultimate condition that's necessary. So as entrepreneurs, if we want to make this kind of impact, we need to commit to studying the root causes, the fundamentals of human flourishing. We can't just do things and think that we're because, so, because we're so smart, we can make a big difference. And this is particularly true with freedom. And here's a fact about history that's amazing and scary. Never in the history of the world, to my knowledge, has any country ever become prosperous through the philanthropy of wealthy people. Never has a country not become prosperous when it has significantly expanded individual freedom. So all the philanthropy in the world won't help people, and freedom will absolutely help them. So if you want to be the best philanthropist, be a freedom fighter. But you need, you need to study it, and the other thing you need to do is have courage. Why do you need to have courage to be a freedom fighter? Because freedom is unpopular. It is not popular as a word, right? People smile when you say freedom, because they're vague about it. But if it really means the ability to act without forcible restraint by others, guess what? guess what? The vast majority of people in the world believe that they have a right to forcibly restrain others. I'm going to bring up some controversial examples. Some of you will get uncomfortable, and this will prove my point about courage. At different points in history, every major religion has had massive violations of freedom. Right now, the leading violator of freedom in the world in terms of a religion is Islam. They, there are people, there are many people, it's a religion of 1.6 billion people, not anywhere near that violent, but a huge percentage who believe that we should be enslaved to a particular religion. Many other religions believe that. Here's a more controversial example if you think there is one. In my field, energy, I believe that an incredibly destructive movement that is harming billions of lives is the movement that calls itself the environmental movement. This movement opposes, they say they're in favor of solar and whatnot, you may favor of anything you want, as long as you leave me free to do what I want. But they're against the three most effective sources of power for human flourishing, and that would be fossil fuels, nuclear, and hydro. The second two have nothing to do with CO2, so it's not about CO2. They're against every practical form of power. So why are then Zuckerberg and Gates and Buffett, why aren't they opposing these people, the environmentalists, the Islamic totalitarians? Because it's scary. Because it's scary to have courage. It's a hell of a lot easier if you're a billionaire to give away billions of dollars to politically correct charities than to take a real stand for the issues that matter most. They'll be coming. You better hurry. Nelson, wait. Aren't you afraid? I mean, it's dangerous out there. You're not going to have the security of the inner circle to protect you. I mean, how, how will you live? You're right, it is dangerous. But that's part of being free, the willingness to live with danger. Bosom, listen to me. You are not prepared. That's why the inner circle was created to be a haven. You made one decision on your own. Now make another. It's all right. 
Don't be afraid. Come out. Come out. It doesn't have to be the way that Dr. Rowan taught us to believe. Listen, there's nothing to fear away from this institution. We can apply all the knowledge that we've stored for so long, and we can put it to use now, and make a better life for us all, outside. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And just before the break, we were talking about individualism and individual rights. And I think one of the things that I find, it's almost paradoxical about individual rights. People think of all those groups we talked about, racial groups, whatever, as various collectives. But even the idea of individual rights is a collective term. It's a social term. It defines how the individual is seen within the collective. People think that individualism and individual rights are just the individual running amok on his own, you know, doing what he wants without regard for others, when really individual rights are that social contract that prevents us from interfering with each other's equal and inalienable rights. So I have always looked at individual rights and individualism as, ironically, a sort of a collective concept a social concept, if, if to be more accurate. Is that a good way of looking at it that might put it in a better light for a lot of people? I don't know. Well, I mean, there is no sense of an individual by himself or herself. Right. An I- individual is ultimately a, a product of two people coming together. Yeah, exactly. And then it, it leads to the question of you know family, tribe, group, collective, etc., nation. This is both a fascinating but a very necessary historical discussion, historical and philosophical discussion. Where does the notion of individual emerge from, ultimately? How does it emerge from? In the religious sense, the notion of individual emerges in Christianity, in that relationship of one person, one individual with the creator, God, Mm -hmm. or it is in the Abrahamic tradition, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, that notion emerges. And that relationship is ultimately in that metaphysical domain of morality, ethics, and afterlife. But in a society as such, historically, it is the group It is the tribe, it is the collective that has defined how people live. You know, uh, an individual was simply part of, a cog of that totality. So historically, you can go back to the origin in the anthropological sense of of man uh, emerging in nature, it emerges as a group as a collective Mm -hmm. and and has has evolved through all the various developments in terms of technology that is agriculture economics and all the other factors you might say that coming from a natural condition into a primitive civilization and then civilization but it was always based upon uh, a group identity a tribal identity, a national identity in that sense, the collectivity. Uh, and there's a long history that brings us ultimately 
I think you know the question uh, in at least in the European in the European history to late Middle Ages early Renaissance period that for the first time uh, the idea of an individual emerges distinct from and the society uh, distinct from the tribe the family as a <laughs> as a thinking reflecting self-aware human being right I think too that it's unavoidable that we're all in a collective. I mean, that's a given, even under under individualism. I think the difference between one collective and another is whether it's a voluntary collective or a forced collective, and whether the individual is free to leave one particular collective. There can be no voluntary or forced collective unless the individual has rights. I mean, so you... That's what I mean, and that's, <laughs> that's what defines the nature of that collective. Yeah. You, you see that, I mean, uh, it, I mean, again, I mean, for lack of time, we cannot go too far and too deep. But you see, for instance, in, in the plays of Shakespeare that emerges, you know, I mean, look at that simple but beautiful play, Romeo and Juliet, and, and what is the conflict between the family of Romeo and the family of Juliet in the city where the, the two young people happened to come together or meet together and fall in love together and what was the taboo that they were breaking. The Capulet are one distinct family, one distinct tribe and the other side, what was it, the Capulet and the Montague, they were another distinct tribe and and they were at war and you don't intermarry, you don't cross the tribal line, the family line. And, and so on, the kinship line, and Romeo and Juliet had crossed that line, you know. They were, they fell in love, and as individual, you know, right. that was the forbidden thing, you know, and that leads to all of the problem, you might say. The, uh, the other Shakespeare play, which is equally, fa- equally if not more fascinating, is Othello. Here is a white girl, Desdemona, you know, daughter of a Duke of Venice. Uh, falling in love with a black man, uh, Othello, who has served uh, the Venetian dukedom as a soldier, and the black man falling in love with a white girl. I mean, this is this is unheard of in the context of tribal identity, collective identity, group identity, and that taboo is broken. That no, the individual, you know, is by himself and herself and have a free will and to exercise that free will is the notion of freedom you know and 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 this notion that develops which is being displayed in in the tragedy of Othello the play is is the beginning and Shakespeare is when Shakespeare is uh, second half of the 16th century I mean we're talking about the period going back to late Renaissance and the beginning of the early years of enlightenment. And so then the whole era of enlightenment comes in. So it is in this period that the notion of individual emerges. Why? Because the individual, as a result of the developments that have taken place in technology, in education, in philosophy, and the greater self-awareness that the people are uh, awakening to begins to question the environment around them, whether it is the questioning of the social arrangement, the political arrangement, the religious arrangement, and the received narrative. So the individual is questioning. And 
in that questioning, there is a challenge being posed, directly or indirectly, to the authority of the collective represented by whoever is the ruler in that collective. In the ancient Egypt, it is the pharaoh. In Elizabethan England, it is the monarchy, the royal family, and so on, the king, uh, the class. The church, uh, when the individual questions it, I mean, the famous questioning uh, of, of the cosmology by Copernicus and Galileo and the reaction of the church authorities because, you know, the church has said, this is the way the universe is arranged. Right. And, and Galileo comes along and says, no, it could be arranged differently, you know. And, and, and here is the evidence that Galileo has found. So here is the individual. He's challenging the authority. And it is in that tension that emerges the place and the question about who is an individual, what are his rights, where does his rights come from, etc. Well, it seems to me that when, in that particular case, when the individual challenged authority, the arbiter in that was reality, ultimately. Like, does the sun go around the earth or is it the other way around kind of thing, right? And that could eventually be seen in an objective way. The, the, the reality has to be explored, right? And so it is the exploration of the reality that takes place. Reality has always been there. It's not that there's a denial of the reality. So the reality that the world is flat and the church says the world is flat is the evidence that is looked around. Right. It's the interpretation of that reality. That's right. right. And, and, but, and the evidence that you sure, gather sure. to support your interpretation, and then comes around new technological developments. And then the same reality is seen through a different pair of eyes, in other words, through different technology that is available. And that challenges then the previous established understanding of reality. And so this is a constant back and forth that goes on in terms of what we might say, our understanding of the world around us. And in terms of our understanding of the world around us, we're also understanding ourselves. So self-awareness, in some ways, is the birth of individuality. Life is a journey, and there is no predicting the outcome. The only thing you can control are your choices, and they'll They'll define who you are. I would just hate to see you so focused on the problem right in front of you that you completely miss the entire picture. That's pretty good advice. Yeah. Yeah, actually it is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, here in the UK, we have a crisis of free speech because the law has become a lot more progressive and therefore a lot more authoritarian in enforcing the various vetoes that now govern our speech, like the heckler's veto, the rioter's veto, and in particular, the safe space, poor me, crybaby's feelings veto. Not only that, the law is enforced selectively and politically 
by police who are less concerned with catching criminals than with telling us what to think. And now we are policed by subjectively enforced hate speech laws where you can be arrested if you say something that may cause alarm and distress to people who are determined to be alarmed and distressed by your free speech. But if the suppression of your birthright causes you alarm and distress, you won't see anyone arrested for that. But if you say something that hurts somebody's feelings, even if you're breaking no law, the police will take the trouble to record it as what they call a non-crime hate incident that then goes onto a database that can affect your future employment prospects. Do you like where this is heading? It's all part of the common purpose. The truth is that a man can no more become a woman than a monkey can become a pig. And that is a widely held view in our society. But if you express it, you'll be accused of hate speech, even though there is no hate in that statement at all. It's an opinion about reality or unreality in this case. The term hate speech is not only an abuse of the language, it is an abuse of the law. In policing opinion and elevating feelings over truth, the law is making a claim on our liberty to which it is not entitled. Now, Benjamin Franklin famously said, whoever would overthrow the liberty of a nation must begin by subduing the freeness of speech. And that is what's happening to us in Britain. Our liberty is being overthrown. We are less free to speak our mind than ever before in my lifetime. Our police have become thought police. Enforcement of the law has become political and subjective. If we accept this as a governing principle, the authoritarian common purpose mentality that's shoving these laws down our throat will never run out of dangerous ideas that must be suppressed for the common good. If our country is not to descend into tyranny, we must decouple the law from speech and from the right to free expression, however offensive that expression may be. We need our equivalent of the US First Amendment. Nothing less will do. A constitutional guarantee that our government can pass no law that prevents us from speaking our mind. We've seen enough now to know that without such a guarantee, we will never live in a free country again. Every human being without exception has the right to speak from the heart. There is no more fundamental a right, and it is beyond the law's legitimate jurisdiction in the liberal society that we claim to be. Any politician who has to legislate for the censorship of opinion is a failure and a fraud. If you've screwed up your society so badly that you need to stop people talking about it, you are the problem. I'm reminded of the statement, Salim, from what you said just before the break that goes, question authority before authority questions you. But this is a constant tension, isn't it? in any society, even no matter how free it is at any given point in time. You were talking about how authority was questioned with discoveries of science and technology. Are we in the same situation today with our whole COVID situation? Well, isn't that ironic? Because that's where we have come. I mean, the beginning of the modern world, in the sense with Renaissance and the coming of enlightenment, was that 
The self-awareness of the individual leads the individual to question authority, you know, and seeks a rational explanation from authority of what the authority says, this is right, this is wrong, this is the way you're going to behave, and this is the way, if you do not behave, you're going to be punished, etc., right. you know. So that is the beginning of the journey in the making of the modern world, and the age of enlightenment as it proceeds forward in time from about 16th century onwards, at least in Europe and then the rest of the world to some degree, is the greater and greater opening for the individual to question authority and the authority being more or less responsive and saying, yes, you know, we together you know, you question, and in this process of questioning and answer, trials and error, we come to understand the world around us. So an open, enlightenment, enlightened society is one in which the authority gives in to the questioning gradually. It needs revolution, it needs force, all of that is part of history. But what we are seeing, as you look back in time, that... The advancement of a good society comes about where the authority is open. And so we talk about eventually a democratic society yes. where, where the individual is basically the basis of the authority. Yeah, it's not as if authority is always in conflict with individualism. It's a, it's a question, I think, of whether people accept the authority, you know, and consent to it. Correct. So that is the because question of the, whether the authority is legitimate. And right. the authority is legitimate to the extent that the authority is open to this dialogue of questioning and answer in which the journey of man as an individual and as a collective is about this conversation that goes on. Remember, in the biblical story, God says to Adam, you cannot eat from this tree. So that is authority. Right. Why you cannot eat from this tree, the fruit, is not answered or is not given. And there begins the dialectics. Adam, to, be an in, to become an individual, if he is going to live in the Garden of Eden, he's not going to live as an individual. The moment he is tempted by Eve to eat the fruit, the forbidden fruit of the tree, he suddenly is awakening to the reality that his choice of eating the fruit, taking a bite of the fruit, is his freedom, not, and in his freedom, to affirm his freedom, he will be going against the rules set by the authority. Exactly that's what happens according to the biblical narrative, you know, of, the, of, 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 well, of, of well, mankind. He is punished. He's thrown out from the Garden of Eden into the world. Well, into the world now he has to fend for himself. Well, isn't, it, isn't, isn't the heart of that whole tree all about, isn't it called the tree of the, of the fruit of knowledge? Precisely. And, Precisely. And, and once you have knowledge, yeah. then you have knowledge between good and evil. And you have knowledge, and that, that demands a choice to be made. Precisely. Right. And, Precisely. and so did God toss us out of paradise or, or toss us into paradise? 
in, in that sense, you know. The, these are great stories, parable, in which we are seeing the dynamics of the individual's birth as opposed to being simply part of a collective or being part of an arrangement in which there is an authoritarian figure, mm-hmm. God or a great legislator or a pharaoh or the monarch that sets the rules and conditions by saying, this is the way the world is, the real world is, and you've got to obey these rules. Well, that's interesting, because given our current circumstances, people are asking, how come Canadians just accepted what has happened without seeming to resist at all? And I wonder if it's because we have, to a degree, respected authority, because it's generally been not too bad in a free society, you know, and you hope that that authority is operating on a level of reality and reason, so that when they exercise their authority, they're doing it in the general interest, as you might say, right? And perhaps that's the reason Canadians and and Americans alike initially went along with it, because, I mean, in the first two weeks of the whole shutdown, we all kind of questioned it. It was something new. Our people that we trusted on a certain level, even though we might disagree with their politics, etc., we figured that they knew something that we didn't know, let's put it that way. And then as our knowledge increases, (laughs) then we start questioning authority. Sounds like we've gone back to the Garden of Eden, (laughs) doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, when an individual starts questioning an authority, it begins with, in some ways, between the authority's explanation of what the authority demands of the individual and the individual's sense that there is something missing, something gone wrong, something that does not fit in terms of the explanation being given. You know, Take the question of masking and social distancing. The, the authority says that you have to wear the mask. You know, and um, this is to prevent the spread of the virus. On the other hand, we know that the individual knows experiments and other opinions and other evidences available that the mask is not a guaranteed security for prevention of the spread of virus if there is. Yeah, in fact, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary that it's more harmful than good. Precisely. It is, there's all sorts of problematic with this matter. And so an individual says, hell, I'm not going to wear it, you know. I mean, if I'm going to be affected by it, uh, by, by the virus, my body mechanism will deal with it, you know. Uh, and I will bear the consequences of it. And it is in that assertion or affirmation that the individual has a right whether he wants to mask or doesn't want to mask begins the contradiction between the authority and the individual, which leads to all sorts of other problems that emerges. You know, the authority can insist and says, if you do not wear the mask, we're going to do X, Y, Z to you. Or the authority can say, yet here are the consequences. And if you do not do, if you do not wear the mask, then you have to bear the consequences of not wearing the mask and, and leave it at that. So that then what you have is what you're talking about. The individual has a choice. But when the choice is removed, then it becomes totalitarian, it becomes authoritarian. So the individual can go along with the authority 
or the individual can choose not to go along, in this case, bear the consequences of the adverse effects of the virus. But if the authority denies any choice to the individual, then we are in a situation back to the earliest moment where we were beginning this discussion. The individual is simply a cog in that collective which is ruled by the dictates of those who are in authority of that collective. Yes, so that brings us full circle again. And where does that leave us now in terms of our current situation? So it leaves us in in, in the sense that where we began this conversation, how did we get here? Well, we got here when we started knocking away, slowly chipping away at the, the right of the individual to exercise his own will based upon his choice of making a decision and bear the consequences. In 1945, we went to war precisely in defending that individual right to live his life according to the means and the will of the individual. It is very interesting. This is 2021. Exactly 80 years ago, January of 1941, when President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, sent the State of the Union message to the Congress. The world was at war. Europe was at war. But America was not at war. This is January of 1941, Pearl Harbor would happen at the end of the year, December of 1941. So in 1941, January, America was still at peace. It was a neutral country. In his State of the Union message, he said to the American people that we need to be aware and be prepared to defend our way of life, which is, he called it, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Now, you cannot have freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear, unless the individual have the choice to make. Otherwise, it's all been given to him. Exactly. Mark you, freedom of fear. We have now turned, 80 years later, upside down everything in the United States, or at least parts of the United States, and in Canada, that fear is the pretext by which our freedom has been abridged. That's the irony of where we have arrived at. And that's where we're going to have to wrap it up for today, Salim. Thank you for joining us. And whether we repeat history or make history over the next week or so, we'll have to come back next week when we invite our listeners to join us again then as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, gentlemen, shall we celebrate? <laughs> ah, gentlemen, pussy! This is indeed a great pleasure. Speak for yourself, Clink. <laughs> now, what is this? Guards without guns? Uniforms unbuttoned, prisoners running wild. Well, I just... You call this discipline? No, sir. General! Now, at ease. I heard in Berlin that congratulations are in order. Capturing those underground leaders is quite a feather in your cap, eh? Thank you, General. 
Of course, it doesn't mean this much now, hmm? Now that the war is over. The what is what? The war. It's over. The war is over. That's right, General. Haven't you heard? No. And neither have the Americans. They bombed Berlin just one half hour ago. You mean the war isn't over? Of course it is not over. Schultz, close the gates. The war is back on. 